KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I'm in the International Boxing Hall of Fame in the Observer category. I mean, I certainly didn't expect that. But, you know, you don't do that. You don't look for the reward. You look forward to doing something you love, and you look forward to doing it because maybe you can do it well and maybe make a difference. And I hope I did that for some readers, and I hope I did that for some of the people that I covered. And our guest this week is Bernard Fernandez, one of the best boxing writers in history. Spent decades covering sports, specifically boxing, at the Philadelphia Daily News. And Bernard, thanks so much for the time. Glad to be here, Matt. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. I know you have a a book coming out. It's kind of a continuation of a series of books. Talk to me about Championship Rounds, Round 4. You know, I I had been approached um, during my career at the Philadelphia Daily News about doing this book or that book with such and such a person, Bernard Hopkins being one. And I certainly knew Bernard Hopkins well enough to try to to work on that project. But, you know, uh, I've been married 55 years. I had four children and I was traveling a lot. Sports writers do travel a lot. I mean, like 10 years ago when I was only married 45 years, somebody asked me how long I'd been married. And I said, 45 years. And they said, what's the secret to being married 45 years? I said, I was only home for 30 of them. And I was spending a lot of time away from my wife and my family. And I did not want to cheat them of the time when when I could be around. And then my children grew up and then my grandchildren were there and I wanted, you know, the same situation. But when I took the buyout from the um, from the Daily News in April of 2012, I was 64. I was in my 65th year. I could take my pension and um, Social Security and the newspaper industry was beginning to change. And I could look down the road and I, I thought maybe, you know, I was not going to fit in it like I had the previous 43 years, last 20 at the Daily News. So then it occurred to me, I've got all this material, hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of stories. So I would take the lazy man's approach to doing a book and and do an anthology, boxing anthology. And I got George Foreman to do the forward for the first book. And it it was pretty well received. So then I said, well, maybe I can do a second one. And Jim Lampley did the did the forward for that. Then I did a third one. And um, the forward for that was done by... John Julian, you know, one one of the great sports writers in America. And this last one was with uh, Ron Borges is out. I have a fifth one that's in the pipeline for release and um, in the spring of 2024, but that'll be the last one. I'm kind of tuckered out <laughs> from going through these things, and I probably used up all the best, my, all my best material. Kind of talk about how the books are, are formatted and how you kind of break them down. Well, they're divided by sections. The first uh, section in all the books is Tales Worth Telling, which are kind of like the story behind the story. You know, um, there used to be an old TV show in, uh, I guess, the 50s and early 60s called Naked City about New York detectives. And at the end, the narrator would say, there are 8 million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them. There may be 8 million stories in boxing, but there's actually about 16 million because beyond what you see in the ring between fighter A and fighter B, one of those guys has got an interesting backstory. You know, Bernard Hopkins has got several. And I was fortunate enough, you know, to do a little probing here and there and come across some of the stories that tell you a little bit more about the individual and not just, you know, that person as, as a fighter. And I think those are the kind that went into tales worth telling. Then I'd have the heavyweights, the non-heavyweights, women of boxing, 
farewells, which, you know, basically are obit tributes. And for the last uh, three books, two, three, and four, and five when it comes out, you know, the last section was other sports, which dealt with baseball, football, basketball, hockey, tennis, whatever stuff that I covered during my newspaper career, you know, just to let people know that I wasn't entirely a one-trick pony. Talk a little bit about how covering boxing at the Daily News came together. Well, you know, the, the thing is, is that Elmer Smith was the boxing writer when I first went to the Daily News in 1984. And uh, my father had been a professional boxer, a welterweight. Matter of fact, I'm sitting in my home office looking at a poster from the 1940s, Archie Moore, the great Archie Moore uh, in the main event, and my father's name underneath him in the, in the lead undercard bout. So from the time I was, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, when they had Gillette Cavalcade of Sports, Friday Night Fights, I would watch boxing with my father and he would tell me what's going on and and why something was happening and i always always was into boxing I, probably the biggest fight i caught uh i covered before i went to philadelphia was the rematch of muhammad ali and leon spinks in the superdome but i'd done some boxing and when i came to the great fight town of philadelphia i figured oh wow i mean at the very least i would be going to fights even if i was just going to watch and um in 1987, Mike Rathard, who was the executive sports editor, was shuffling some of the beats around, and Elmer went to um, a general sports column. And um, I was being mentioned possibly for going on the Eagles, which is top of the food chain, but they weren't very good then, or hockey, which was absolutely ridiculous because I'm from New Orleans originally, and they don't, they don't play a whole lot of hockey there. So I went to Mike, and I said, who are you looking at for boxing? He said, well, I don't, I don't know. Are you interested? I said, yeah. You know, so he put me on a boxing beat. The first fight I covered for the Daily News was Hagler Leonard, you know, which was pretty damn good, you know, to start out that way. But whether it was at the Blue Horizon or at Madison Square Garden or some venue in Las Vegas, I always felt comfortable and at home on the boxing beat. You know, I, I didn't have to be groomed for it. I, I was naturally into it because I'd spent most of my life following boxing. And it was a good time, too. I mean, Mike Tyson was coming into his own, Vander Holyfield. George Foreman, Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, Ray Leonard was was still fighting, Tommy Hearns. Uh, and later, you know, people like Canelo Alvarez and, and Oscar De La Hoya and Felix Trinidad, Bernard Hopkins. So I was up to my eyebrows with great fighters and great events, and I loved every minute of it. What makes Philadelphia such a great boxing town, in your opinion? I think his, historically it has always been a great boxing town. At one point, I think, in the uh, 1960s, uh, Ring Magazine, you know, of course, did their top 10 rankings. And four of the top 10 middleweights in the world were from Philadelphia. I mean, think of that. The entire world and four of the top 10 were from Philadelphia. I wish I had been around for, for that era when Benny Briscoe and Cyclone Hart and Bobby Boogaloo Watts, you know, Kitten Hayward, those guys were still active. I got to know some of those guys. You know, and it was it was it was terrific. But then, you know, Bernard Hopkins became Bernard Hopkins and nobody saw that coming because he didn't have an Olympic pedigree or whatever. Meldrick Taylor was was terrific. And it turned out to be a pretty good era of boxing. Maybe not what it was in the most golden age in the 1960s, but pretty good, you know. And um, but we we covered, you know, not just Philadelphia fighters. You know, we went like to Tokyo, went to London, went to South Korea, Mexico, Canada. Um, I was going out to Las Vegas six, seven times a year, and uh, my standing joke was I spent more time in Vegas than Wayne Newton. 
But Philadelphia has a reputation. When you say Mexican fighter, you know, you have this image of of, of guys that will fight you to the, the very end, you know. And then you say Philadelphia fighter, and then you most people get an image of uh, some kid that came out of his mama's womb throwing left hooks. And when I went on the beat, you know, and, and when I would try to get hold of somebody and, and they would be told, you know, the, the boxing writer for the Philadelphia Daily News is trying to get in touch with you. Everybody knew how the Philadelphia Daily News was covering boxing. I mean, it was the go-to source for this, that sport in this town. You know, so uh, I, I never had a problem getting hold of people. And over time, you either build a reputation for having an agenda and twisting what somebody says to fit that agenda or being fair, you know, and, and treating people fairly. And I, I like to think that I developed that, you know, and made it a little bit easier for me to to get hold of the people that I needed to get hold of because they thought I was a straight shooter. You know, I'm very proud of that. You talked about your father and that connection and kind of how that got you into boxing. Did you always want to write and did you always want to be in newspapers growing up? I, I get asked quite a bit. When I was a kid, my father, in addition to being a boxer, he had served in the Navy and, and uh, the Pacific in World War II. And when he came back you know, home, he was a police officer in New Orleans retired as a captain in 1972. But most of the adult males that I knew growing up were cops. I had an uncle that was a cop. My father was a cop. Both my sons went into law enforcement. Both of their wives were in law enforcement. So the thing is, is that when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, I expected that I would probably become a police officer. But a funny thing happened. I was at uh, St. Stephen's School in New Orleans and they had a um, a citywide essay contest for eighth graders at Catholic schools in New Orleans. And so I got first place for, for our school. So my essay got sent into, you know, I guess the archdiocese, you know, for whoever was judging it. And about three, four weeks later, I show up for school and there was there was an assembly to announce that I had won the citywide essay contest, you know, and I was going to some banquet where other people were getting awards for other other stuff. And Sister Camilla, the nun who was, you know, was the principal of the school, she called me over and she said, you know, you should go into writing. You have a, a gift. I said, gift? Wow. I mean, who knew? Then I went to Delisle High School and Brother Justin and um, another one of the, the Christian brothers both told me that I should become a writer. So I, it was like a line from, you know, from the, the Blues Brothers. They were on a mission from God, you know, so... If I had two Christian brothers and a nun telling me I should become a writer, then I said, what the heck? You know, so I went to LSU and studied journalism. And what is your introduction to the newspaper business? Where's the foot get in the door? Well, part of this early evolution uh, came in the summer between my junior and senior years of high school. And um, I, I guess people from different schools were being recommended to be the summer copy boy in the sports department at the time speaking in, you know, which was New Orleans main paper. And um, I found out that I I was going to get that. So, you know, I was covering some some baseball games, but I was mostly working in the office. And New Orleans had um, a legendary writer named Peter Finney, who was in, um, wrote in New Orleans for 68 years. It's gone now. But I got to pick his brain, pick some of the other people's brains, you know, stuff like that. And I think I told... Peter Finney, I said, you know, I wanted to be just like him. And he told me, you don't want to be the second Peter Finney. You want to be the first Bernard Fernandez. I said, I, I can't. I'm a junior, you know. 
my dad is the first Bernard Fernandez, you know, he got a kick out of that, but that was it. You know I mean? With a sponsor like that or a role model like that, I was named the sports editor of the home of Courier, which is a town of about 35,000 people, about 40 miles Southwest in New Orleans when I was 22 years old. I had two guys working for me that are old enough to be my father. I don't think they liked that very much. And then I later went to the Miami Herald, the Jackson Daily News, which was in Mississippi. And, you know, that might not sound like much, but I was covering Southeastern Conference football and basketball, which is a pretty big deal there. I went to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I was there a brief time when I had the opportunity to interview with the Daily News, which had one of the great sports sections in the country. You know, all the people that were there, Stan Hockman, Ray Didger, Rich Hoffman, you know, the, it, it was just an all-star, you know, thing. It was like going to the 27 Yankees. So I asked Mike Rath and I said, how many people are you looking at for this position? I figured they were looking at like 30 or 40 people. And he said, we're not looking at anybody else. We want you. And I said, okay, you want me? You got me. And so I came to Philadelphia. My wife was still trying to sell her house down south. And I called her and I said, you're still coming to Pennsylvania, but it's going to be Philadelphia, not not Pittsburgh. What are your favorite memories of your newspaper career prior to coming to Philadelphia with all those other stops you mentioned uh, leading up to coming to Philly? When you think back to that time of your career, what are your favorite memories? Well, I think one of the things that got me some attention was they have the APSE contests, Associated Press Sports Editors Writing Contests. And, you know, most professional journalism organizations in sports, whatever, you know, they have that. And um, I had two firsts and a second, you know, which is really good, you know, because it was a national competition. And this is when newspapers had money um, more than they do now. And, um, you know, I heard from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Toronto Globe and Mail, New York Post, Sports Illustrated. You know, I told my wife, I said, I'm 36. I said, I'll never be more marketable than I am now. So um, I think it's time I go go to the big leagues, you know. And um, But one of the things that I remember was Herschel Walker, when he decided to turn pro, you know, and you had, you had to be four years in college before you could, you know, but that was the USFL and the uh, American Basketball Association was signing guys who were sophomores and, and stuff like that. They weren't waiting for them to be in for four years. And so when he went to the New Jersey Generals, which was a big story, I, I made about six or seven phone calls and I was able to track down Spencer Haywood, who was from um, the Mississippi Delta. And, um, he was the first sophomore to go to play professional basketball. And so I got hold of him, you know, and, and talking about why he decided to turn pro, you know, and he said, well, you know, what I was studying in college was basketball. I mean, you know, and I've got all these family members and I have to take care of them. And, you know, he was great. And I said, by the way, how many people have, have talked to you about this, about your situation as opposed to Herschel Walker? He said, I haven't talked to anybody. You're the first. So I had a national scoop on that, you know, which was which was pretty good. When when you able to to find a really great story and get it first and do it right, it's a really good feeling for people that do what I do. So let's talk. I want to pick your brain about boxing. In your opinion, in your career, pound for pound, best boxer you ever saw? Well, I, w- I would say Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. I mean, both of those guys. I mean, and they fought three times, you know, and. Um, but I would say the best of Roberto Duran and the best of Sugar Ray Leonard probably is sharing number one. I got to catch virtually all of Mike Tyson's career. The heavyweight division was really flush then because, you know, you had Tyson, 
Evander Holyfield, Riddick Bowe, Lennox Lewis. Gary Cooney was uh, retired, but he came back to fight George Foreman. There were a lot of great fights made in the heavyweight division, you know, and I was there for most of them. It was really interesting. After we went to Tokyo and Mike Tyson got knocked out by Buster Douglas, there was a fight that I thought needed to be covered. It was in London, Lennox Lewis and Oliver McCall. But I knew that Lennox Lewis had been shooting scenes for Ocean's Eleven or something like that. And he wasn't training like he should have. And I knew that uh, Oliver McCall was a dangerous fighter. So I went to talk to Mike Rath and I said, we ought to cover this fight. And he went, oh, yeah. he said, why should we cover that fight? And I said, Tokyo, you know, because he knew what I meant, you know, that we were there and the Inquirer wasn't. So he says, okay, you can go to London. So I went to London and um, Oliver McCall knocked out Lennox Lewis, you know, which was like the second biggest boxing uh, upset ever. So from that point on, if I told my executive sports editor this was a fight that we needed to cover, I pretty much had carte blanche, you know, to go. They trusted my opinion on fights that were worth covering and maybe not worth covering. And so that was that was pretty good, you know, and um, uh, it was a great time to be to, to be doing boxing. I felt at home, as much at home at ringside at the Blue Horizon as I did at Madison Square Garden or any place in Las Vegas, you know, and um, I loved the sport from the time I was a kid. And I came into it when it was a really great time to be covering boxing and um, got to know all the other boxing writers from the major metropolitan papers. And we, you know, we'd, we'd go out to Vegas, wherever, you know, and it was like, yeah, you were still trying to beat those guys on, on a story, but it wasn't cutthroat like it is if you're covering the Yankees for like the five New York papers, you know, I mean, it, we, were, we were all friendly. Maybe we didn't share some things all the time, but but it was it was a great time to be doing what I did. Ballpark about how many fights do you think you covered? Could you even begin to put a number on that? Hundreds, you know. I, I don't know, a thousand? I don't, I don't know. If you're counting all the fights that they might be on a fight card, people would maybe know the main event, but it might be five or six fights, seven fights that were on the entire card. So if you're talking about all the car uh, fights that were on a particular card and add them up, it would be well into the hundreds. It might might be a thousand. I don't know. And the thing is, the way I looked at it was, you never know. Maybe one of those four rounders might have some young kid that you never heard of, and you see something that tells you that he's going to be special, and you want to be there on the ground floor when it happens. I remember I was out in Las Vegas to cover. Uh, I'm even trying to remember. Um, it was an Oscar De La Hoya fight, and they had some some little kid named Manny Pacquiao from the Philippines. And nobody knew, I mean, you know, it was like early in the fight card and, and very few people in the stands. And I'm watching this guy and I'm thinking, God, he's really good. And he turned out to be Manny Pacquiao. Ed Schuyler, you know, who covered boxing for 32 years, you know, for the Associated Press, he remembers the first time he saw Roberto Duran, who was in, you know, an undercard bout at Madison Square Garden, and he saw Roberto Duran, and he said, good Lord, this guy is really good. That was his his Roberto Duran moment. My similar moment was seeing Manny Pacquiao, and I, I just was raving about him. I said, we got to watch this guy, you know, and um, my instincts proved correct in that moment. So you never know. You know, it, it really pays to be there for the whole fight card because you might see something that you fall away and, and you can follow up on. Manny Pacquiao was my uh, gotcha moment. You know, a lot of people missed that fight, you know, who were in, in the building, boxing writers, but they were in a press lounge, you know, having dinner or whatever, you know, and uh, you don't get many moments like that. You know, it's like you, the guy who discovered gold in California in 1849. 
most important fight you covered and best fight you covered? The most important, well, this is interesting because they're only six weeks apart. The most important fight that I covered was Tyson Douglas because, you know, the ramifications were that were were immense. And um, six weeks later, I was in Las Vegas to cover the first fight between Meldrick Taylor and Julio Cesar Chavez. And that was the ultra controversial fight in which Meldrick Taylor had to fight one and the fight was stopped with two seconds to go in the last round by Richard Steele. Um, whether or not that was the right call or not, I mean, they're they're still debating that. Because the ending was so controversial, and Melder Taylor was such a great fighter representing Philadelphia, it was actually the fight of the year as named by Ring Magazine, not Tyson Douglas, even though that was uh, had greater global impact. There was also the fight, the first fight between Diego Corrales and um, Castillo, Juan, Juan Castillo, in Las Vegas that was probably as good a fight as, as Chavez Taylor won. And there were all those Arturo Gatti fights in Atlantic City. I mean, you know, Arturo Gatti was like the white Matthew Saad Muhammad. You know, they, they were just Mr. He was Mr. Excitement, like Saad Muhammad was Mr. Excitement. And um, everybody wanted to be at, at, you know, he wasn't the best fighter ever, but he might have been the most exciting fighter of his era, you know, and that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. Some people said, well, he wasn't really good enough to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, he was good enough to be in the Hall of Fame because he drew so many eyes to boxing. If they had been somebody else like Arturo Gatti come along after Arturo Gatti, HBO would still be in boxing. And that's how significant he was. How many Ali fights did you cover, Muhammad Ali? Because I know like that was the first, you covered a Muhammad Ali, the first real super fight you covered, right? Yeah, and, and that was the only time that I covered Muhammad Ali at ringside, but I did get to know him, obviously, because he was he was around everywhere, you know, and um, one time uh, when I was working down south in Jackson, Mississippi, he came for the Medgar Evers uh, reunion, you know, and um, I was a columnist there, you know, and um, he invited me up to his room and he did magic tricks for me. He, he had an on and an off button. You know, the thing the thing is, is that like maybe if he's in his hotel room and he kicks off the shoes and he's laying on a bed and, and, you know, you're fortunate enough to get an interview with him. You're still getting Muhammad Ali, but maybe not the, the full uh, show. But when he was out in public, it was like a Christmas tree, turning on a Christmas, lights on a Christmas tree. He just lit up and he did his thing and and people just gravitated to it. He had a magnetism and he was a great fighter, too. So you put the talent and the charisma together and then you wind up with a legend. And not too many people have both parts of that equation is there a fight or i'm sure there's more than one but what is at the top of the list of fights you wish you covered and that could be i'm sure you pretty much covered anything you wanted during your career you know but going back in time if you could pick one fight to be ringside for that you were not did not have the opportunity to be ringside for what would it be I was at the paper, and Elmer Smith was still the boxing writer, and he was the one who was at ringside, you know, for the Marvin Hagler-Tommy Hearns fight, which was the greatest three rounds probably ever in, in boxing. I would have loved to have been there for that fight. I would have certainly loved that this predates me by, by more than that. I would have loved to have been at Madison Square Garden for the first Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight. I would I would make the 1 and 1A one for the, the two fights I most would have loved to have been at, you know, during my lifetime. We need to take a break. We will have more with Bernard Fernandez right after this. This is one-on-one. 
And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with legendary boxing writer Bernard Fernandez. Who is your favorite boxing writer? Oh, God. Um, when I got interviewed at the at the Daily News, I, I interviewed with Mike Rathett. And then he said, well, you have to have a second interview with um, the, edit, the editor-in-chief of the paper. You know, and, and so I came in. I was, I was all nervous and, you know, wanted to get it right. So... We're sitting there, and you know, we're just we're just talking. I'm waiting for the interview to, uh, to talk. That was Gil Spencer, by the way. And um, so he says, well, you know, what? Who are some of the writers you 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 admire? And I said, was well, this one, this one, this one? I said, you've got some great ones here. You know, Bill Lyon and Stan Hockman in Philadelphia. Uh, although Bill was with the Enquirer, and I mentioned John Julian. There was a fighter in San Francisco, Wells Twombly. You know, he had a very interesting name. And so I'm I'm still waiting for the interview to start. And um, so Gil picked up the phone and he hit a couple of buttons and he buzzed Mike Rath and he said, he'll do. That was it. <laughs> Never did do a formal interview, you know, but um, John Julian became a very good friend of mine. Jerry Eisenberg is 93 years old and still writing. He's the columnist emeritus for the Newark Star-Ledger. Peter Finney, you know, was my my first role model. I would say Peter Finney and Sean Julian, Stan Hockman, you know, guys like that, you know, um, they set the bar so high that you just want to get up ahead of steam and, and jump as high as you can and, and, and try to approach what they brought to the craft. I know one guy who, who went with um, Phil Jasner, you know, um, who was covering and for another paper who was covering the 76ers. And he went with Phil Jasner and, and he just, he wanted to go to whoever he, Phil was interviewing and get the same quotes, you know, that Phil got. And then he wrote his story. And then he said, then I read Jasner's story and it was better than mine, you know, so, and, and that can happen. You know, you want to be competitive with the people who are at the top of the profession. It's the same thing in in sports, football players, basketball players, whatever. They want to get to the top rung, the upper tier, you know, I mean, everybody does. And I think I spent my entire career hoping that somehow I would get in that vicinity. I don't know, but getting, being better than anybody, but I I wanted to hopefully get in the conversation. If you had to give somebody one of your articles and you hoped it would kind of encapsulize your impact, who you were as a writer, your style, is there one fight or one interview that would be at the top of the list that you would hand and say, here, read this, and you'll get some insight into who I am as a writer. You know, Bernard Hopkins, there were people that didn't like him because they didn't like something, you know, maybe the fact he'd been in prison or something he said, and other people worshipped at his altar as a fighter. There was a kid named Sean Nagler who had cancer. He was a teenager, he'd been an amateur boxer, and he was a huge Bernard Hopkins fan, and he got in, his mother got in touch with Bernard Hopkins' uh, attorney. And Bernard Hopkins visited him in the hospital. And what happened, and this is in the Philadelphia area. So the kid was granted a wish from the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And it was that he wanted to see Bernard Hopkins fight. So the Make-A-Wish Foundation flew him and his family out to Las Vegas. But because they had been reading about Bernard Hopkins, you know, the, the young man and his father, they knew me. Bernard Hopkins knew me. And... They were, you know, when he met with Bernard Hopkins in his hotel suite, I was the only person that was allowed in there, only media person that they didn't want it to make it a, a circus or anything. So I, I got, I did the story years, a couple of years after that, Bernard Hopkins was fighting again and he couldn't go to the fight, you know, because he was too ill. And he saw the fight 
and like he died like the day after or two days after. And Bernard Hopkins was one of the pallbearers. And once again, I was the one that, that got this story, you know, and it occurred to me, I said, you know, and I said this earlier, when you get to see something or be a part of something that, you know, you, you make that story your own. I mean, I was very touched by what this boy and his, and his family went through. And, you know, the fact that they entrusted me to tell a story, I, w- I would put that probably at number one, because it was, you know, not not something that, that anybody else had. And it was something that moved me personally, you know, and um, that can happen sometimes. I want to go back to the Tyson-Buster-Douglas fight. You're there. When, during that fight, do you realize that history is going to be made or really has a chance to be made? When do you kind of mentally start looking at this fight as, oh my goodness, he could lose? Well, I don't think many people thought that that could happen. But there were, it was a like, a you know, they had that movie, The Perfect Storm, and it was the perfect storm coming together. Mike Tyson went to Japan. He figured it would be another two-round ho-hum knockout victory for him for himself. And he wasn't training hard. I mean, there were some rumors, you know, that he was uh, having women come up to the room. That wasn't verified, you know, but there was, there was a lot of talk about that. He took Buster Douglas lightly, which was easy to do because... Buster Douglas was a talented guy, you know, who didn't always train hard. But his his mother, Lula Pearl Douglas, she had cancer and she had just died uh, like a a month, six weeks, whatever, before the fight. So he dedicated himself that he was going to give his greatest performance. And he trained as he had never trained before. So you had maybe a disinterested Tyson fighting a super motivated Buster Douglas in about the third or fourth round. You know, a lot of us were sitting there and we were saying, Mike Tyson's losing this fight. Not only is he losing, he's losing pretty big, you know. And in the eighth round, Mike Tyson landed an uppercut and knocked Buster Douglas down. And he was looking at the uh, the referee doing a count and he got up at nine. And then there was some controversy because they were saying, you know, well, the timekeeper had already hit 10, you know. But, you know, he was he was aware of what was going on. He was wanted a little extra time to, to get his his sentences back and he was looking at the count from the referee, you know, and, and so he got up in time and then he knocked in the 10th round, he knocked, he knocked Tyson out. But I would say about the fourth round and there was 60,000 people in the Tokyo dome and it was almost silent in there. They couldn't believe what they were seeing either. And, you know, once, once again, and not, you know, not to, to say that this is the most important thing, but there I was covering the biggest upset in boxing history, and I'm there, and there were people at other newspapers, including the Inquirer, that, that didn't send anybody there because they just presumed it would be a one or two round knockout for Tyson, you know, and, and um, the writer for the Inquirer is trying to do this by telephone from how many, however many thousand miles away, 14 time zones, and I was there, and, you know, when you have a situation like that, you know, and and you feel like I've hit pay dirt, you know, I've, I've hit the mother load, you know, and I came back from Tokyo after eight days and I could not believe all the good material that I got. Amazing. Give me a boxer that never got the credit they were due, be it because of when they boxed, the weight they boxed, maybe their personality, whatever it is. But is there somebody that was much better than they were given credit for? Melder Taylor is not in the International Boxing Hall of Fame yet. He should be. And and the reason for that is is going to the first fight that he had with Julio Cesar Chavez, a fight that I believe he, he deserved to win 
on the scorecards. That was the, the the one where they had the big controversy because Richard Steele, the referee, stopped the fight with two seconds left. The fact of the matter is that Meldrick was never the same fighter after that bout. And he was never going to be the same fighter after that bout, whether he won or lost. But in my mind, you know, there was a lot of reasons why I think he should have gotten the decision that he deserved. But because he had a abbreviated prawn when he was the best that he could be, it didn't last as many years or as many bouts as it could have. The best of Meldrick Taylor was pretty damn good, was a Hall of Fame fighter. But he's not in the Hall of Fame because he was never the same after that fight with, with Chavez. And in my opinion, and not everybody shares this, he deserved those last two seconds in getting the decision over Chavez. That would have been his, his crowning glory. It might have been enough to get him into the International Boxing Hall of Fame, but for those two seconds. You know, Meldrick Taylor is, is tremendously well thought of in Philadelphia, but he's not in the Hall of Fame. He may never never be there because his prime didn't last long enough. But he was an exciting fighter. He was the epitome of, of what a Philadelphia fighter is in legend lore. And I'm very proud to have covered him when he was at his best because his best was, I don't know if it was the best, but his best was right up there with anybody I've ever covered. And I've covered hundreds of fighters. What has happened to boxing in the grand scheme? Because it is not nearly as popular not nearly important in the pecking order when it comes to TV, when it comes to, to fans. What has, I would say, over the last 15, 20 years, what, do you, what has happened to boxing that has knocked it down? Well, there's too many sanctioning bodies. And what happens is that, you know, the, the, the sanctioning body, you know, if you get rated by another organization, they won't rate you. Or, you know, if you fight for another organization's title and they all have, you know, so when, when you have you know, like three world champions or four world champions in the same division, people get confused. And I think boxing was better when you had one world champion in each weight class. And, and there are, you know, there are 11 weight classes now. You know, once upon a time, they only had five or six. They kept adding weight classes. They kept adding sanctioning bodies. And a lot of them were in different countries, you know, so it just got too much there was too much volume out there and not enough broadcast entities. And, you know, HBO got out of boxing. Showtime is about to get out of boxing. Some of the, the best fighters are only fighting once a year, if that. They all think that they should get mega millions, you know, for, for every every time to fight the top people. And they're all on pay-per-view, so you're not getting it on TV unless you pay $75. Boxing, the sport hasn't changed. It still can be the most exciting thing you can see on TV if you get a great fight. The politics of the of the sport has changed, and I don't know if you say it's is death by suicide, but it could be fixed. I mean, if you had the right person who was given dictatorial powers to just say this is how it's going to be, it could be fixed. But there's too many people that have their own slice of the pie, and that don't want to share it. You know, and um, it's unfortunate because a great boxing match is as good as anything there is in sports. Past the writing, you appeared in a handful of films including Rocky Balboa, what was the the movie experience like for you? Well, what happened was I was supposed to be in the, the movie that Tommy Morrison was in, which was another occasion where I might have been in a movie. But I was in Tokyo to cover Tyson Douglas, and uh, so I wasn't in it. So uh, they came back and they were going to they were going to do another movie, Rocky Balboa, some years later. So I wrote a facetious column that I was meant to be funny. I don't know how many people laugh, but sly you owe me that I wasn't in in Rocky Balboa. 
you know, oh, excuse me, I wasn't in. Um, I think it was Rocky Five. Five, Rocky Five. Yeah, I wasn't in Rocky Five, the one with Tommy Morrison. You know, and so it was meant to be funny. I don't know how many people laughed at it or something. But about a week later, uh, I got a phone call from some lady who was with a casting agency in, in Los Angeles. And she said, um, she says, Sly saw your story and uh, he wants you to be in his movie. She says, I, I couldn't get in touch with you because we didn't have a number for your agent. And I said, well, you couldn't get in touch with my agent because I don't have one. I have a wife and she takes 100%. <laughs> but that that was it he he somehow he saw the story and um and he said well he got a couple of uh actual writers i mean uh bert sugar was in it chuck johnson with usa today and, and you know we were in the movie you know it was pretty cool then i wound up uh getting you know like walk-on type of appearances and real steel and play it to the bone you know and didn't have didn't have any lines in that you know but so i've been in three movies all in a role of boxing writer. I'm typecast, you know. <laughs> what can I say? If I ever get another one, it'll probably be as a boxing writer. So you stopped at the Daily News. You took a buyout in 2012, and you talked about earlier how you could see kind of the landscape and everything changing. But when you stopped being a newspaper writer full-time, was it difficult? Like, did you struggle to, to transition out of it? Or... I mean, you're obviously so fulfilled by your family and everything, you were able to pay more attention to there. But was it difficult not being able to scratch that itch? Or is that where the anthologies, the championship rounds helped kind of fill that gap? Well, not Nostradamus or anything, but the newspaper industry was changing, you know, and I'm not saying it's better. It was better when I, you know, when I did it or, or, or worse now. But the Philadelphia Daily News always had great boxing coverage actually had great sports coverage. I mean, you know, I think that's what the paper was largely known for, uh, for a long time. And um, I could look down the road. I knew that papers were, you know, they were going to downsize staff. They were going to, you know, they're never going to, the Philadelphia Daily News was, and the Inquirer were never going to cut back on the Phillies, Eagles, Sixers, and Flyers. But maybe golf and tennis and boxing you know, they were going to get hit a little bit. Those sports were not going to get covered the way they had been. And then plus instant communications where, you know, they wanted you to file a story five minutes after the event was over. We didn't have a we didn't have a Sunday paper at the Daily News. So when I covered a fight that happened on a Saturday night, I could go to the press conference, get all the quotes and write a really in-depth story for Monday's Daily News, which had a lot of stuff you know, that the Inquirer might not have had because I had that extra time. But it got to a point where if you did get to cover a fight and, and there was going to be less and less of that for me, um, they wanted it in five minutes after the event was over and I'd have to change the way I approach things. I probably would not be going to as many fights and I probably wouldn't even, I don't even know that they would still have a primary boxing writer. You know, it would be something that they'd, you know, farm out to somebody else on the staff. You know, and I looked at that, I was... In my 64th year, I was going to be, be 65 later that year, and, and I talked to my wife and I said, I'm looking down the road and I, I'm not sure that I'm going to fit with the new way, you know, the new Philadelphia Daily News, the way it's going to be, as I did in the way that it has been. So I decided to take the buyout. I still was able to, to do freelance stuff, you know, for Ring Magazine and, and for, you know, for other uh, online publications. So I kept my hand in and, and, and I got out, you know, and um, 
it was probably the best decision for me, you know, maybe for somebody else that they would have, uh, you know, kept on and, and, you know, let their, their position evolve into whatever it was going to be. But I was at an age and I just felt that I was ready, you know, to get out. I was not prepared to adjust to some of the adjustments I'd have to make, you know, so that was that. Final question. We've talked about so much of your career, things you did, stories you broke. When it comes down to it, what are you most proud of? When it comes to Bernard Fernandez, boxing writer? Well, you know, when I first went into newspaper work, you know, they have so many different beats, you know, city hall, politics, this, 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 all the different kinds. Why did I become a sports writer? I became a sports writer because it was something that I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted, you know, and, and of course it evolved. It wasn't just all sports. You get to a point where you had to be a political writer and a crime writer and everything else mixed in with the sports. But I got a chance to to be a sports writer. And the only good thing I ever was like in school or whatever, I don't want to say prodigy or anything, but the only thing that I did really well was write. You know, I mean, all through through my life, you know, that's what I was known for. And when I decided at the age of 17 that um all these people were, you know, like saying that I should go into journalism, I said, "Well, you know, maybe I'd be a better writer than a cop, you know, because, you know, with all my uncles and my father and all the people that, that he worked with, you know, and I said, maybe, maybe that's the way to go. And it turned out to be the right decision for me, you know, and um, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm still doing some freelance stuff for different publications, not a ton, but enough to keep my hand in, you know, and um, I feel pretty good about it. I certainly did not expect to get in in any halls of fame or or that, you know, and and uh, I'm in the International Boxing Hall of Fame in the Observer category. I mean, I certainly didn't expect that, but you know, you don't do that. You don't you don't look for the reward. You you look forward to doing something you love, and you look forward to doing it because maybe you can do it well, and maybe make a difference. And I hope I did that for some readers, and I hope I did that for some of the people that I covered. Bernard Fernandez, thanks so much for the time. This was wonderful. Okay, thank you so much for having me. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank legendary boxing writer Bernard Fernandez for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. You can follow the show on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at One on One Pod. You can follow me there as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.